And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Ziadian. And today we will be discussing the topic of eschatology with an emphasis on all millennialism. And to help us with this topic, we have invited the guest of all guests when it comes to this topic, and that is Dr. Kim Riddlebarger. Kim is the senior pastor at Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California, and was also a co-host on the White Horse Inn. Welcome to the show, Kim. Good to be on with you, Matt. Thank you very much. What a pleasure, man. Well, good to be with you. I'm flattered. I don't get out much these days. <laughs> it's like Bill and Ted. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> you know not to whom you're speaking. <laughs> I, I'm really excited. I'm a big fan of uh, White, White Horse Inn, and I listen to it consistently, and I just love um, all the insights uh, you folks have on that show. It's just remarkable. Absolutely. It's a blast. It was absolutely a blast to do. I hope we can see a reunion at one time or another. We're hoping. We're hoping. That would be great. Okay, Kim, you have written one of the premier books on the issue. Can you please tell us about your book, A Case for All Millennialism? Yeah, A Case for All Millennialism is a book that is essentially um, an account of my conversion from my dispensational upbringing to all millennialism. And it was a slow and painful journey. I was born and bred in mainstream evangelicalism. I grew up in a Christian bookstore. I've been around dispensational teachers, dispensational churches up until my 30s. And I started to uh, entertain some questions about dispensationalism. And um, at that time, I had become a five-point Calvinist. I was encouraged by several of my professors, John Ward Montgomery and Rod Rosenblatt, to uh, attend seminary and come back and teach. That led to Westminster Seminary in California. So as I sat as a student in Westminster, California, I uh, came into contact with uh, Jardis Boss and Meredith Klein and others, and my precious dispensationalism was under attack um, constantly by men who had uh, an equal love for Christ as I assume dispensationalists had had. We grew up in the dispensational culture that said if you didn't take the Bible literally, then 
you were either a theological liberal or closet Roman Catholic. So it was especially important that men who were godly and wise and who knew the scriptures better than any of the dispensationalist teachers I had had to start to give me arguments that I couldn't answer. So a case for all millennialism is, in a sense, um, my response to dispensationalism as an insider coming out, and I, I didn't address the question as a whole. That had been done by Anthony Hookema. It was well done by uh, Cornell Venema afterwards. I wanted to make the case. Here is a 200-page, quick, fast, easy read as to why amillennialism is, I think, the biblical view. Great. Sure appreciate that. Thank you. All right, let's jump in. And first thing I want to jump into is the hermeneutics of eschatology. So how do we approach this from a hermeneutic standpoint? Is the New Testament the interpretive grid for the Old Testament? The short answer is yes, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. There are good reasons for that. Uh, the best reason is that Jesus himself teaches us to do that when he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Um, we're told that in Luke 24, 27, and he opened the scriptures and from Moses through the, the prophets showed them how he was the center and, and substance of all of scripture. So it's the hermeneutic that Jesus used to find himself in the Old Testament that we as Christians ought to use. Now, I know there's a, there's a, um, a big controversy raised when you say that the Old Testament is Christian scripture as opposed to Jewish scripture. But I really do believe the Old Testament, as Christ himself taught, is the revelation of God of Christ in type and shadow. So Jesus is as central to the Old Testament story as he is to the New, although in the Old Testament he's hidden in types and shadows. Um, if Jesus himself teaches us to read the Bible that way, then certainly we ought to as well. And you see this just the way the Old Testament handled by Paul, especially, for example, the way he calls Gentiles who trust in Christ, children of Abraham. Uh, you see that in the book of Hebrews, especially when we're told that Abraham is looking for something other than just the land promise. That's how the New Testament interprets the Old. And so uh, I, I don't think it's rocket science to to essentially do what Jesus and the apostles did when you pick up your Bible, read it as they taught us to read it. Okay, so question is, um, if so, does this violate the perspicuity of the Old Testament scripture before the New Testament was canonized? One of the charges that some have raised against the Amil hermeneutic, the Amil hermeneutic, is to say, well, you're, you're saying then that the Bible is deceptive because those in the original audience, the Jews of uh, the diaspora and, and Canaan and so on, they were reading the Bible thinking it was God's revelation to them when you're now telling me it's about Christ. So you're denying the clarity of scripture. Well, I, I think the better way to, to, to see this is to say, if you walk into a room at night and the lights are off, the furniture is there, but you can't really see things clearly or things well, everything's set in place. Everything is where it's going to be when you turn the lights on. But when you turn the lights on, you now see the same things in greater clarity. So I would argue against the idea that uh, we're somehow misreading, mistreating the Old Testament, denying its perspicuity, its clarity, when we say we read it in a, in a Christ-centered lens, because that's how Jesus taught us to read it. Mm -hmm. And again, remember, Moses, somebody greater than me is coming, and when he comes, you better listen to him. And David telling us that this great king is going to come and I'm, my biological lineage will lead to his birth. You know, those things are, are really powerful and profound in the Old Testament. So 
I don't think that argument sticks, but I do think we have to be very clear that when we read and teach from the Old Testament, one of the first things we have to establish is what did this mean to the original audience? How did the Jews hear the words of the prophets? And then how does the word, how do the words of the prophets go on to point ahead to Christ? And I think both of those things are done simultaneously, uh, especially in the prophets. Beautiful. Great. Uh, so, uh, criticisms like that, do they come from a an understanding, uh, or, well, a hermeneutical understanding that it has to be grammatical, historical, uh, literal, historical, or uh, what position uh, would you uh, take in, uh, to answer uh, such criticisms in regards to the hermeneutical position? Well, I think you read the scriptures grammatically, historically. I think you take them in their original context and you compare scripture to scripture. The, you, you look for the plain sense what is the plain sense of the passage? And sometimes to get to the plain sense of the passage, it helps to have a very broad knowledge of scripture. And I think the reformers were absolutely right to tell us you don't read scripture in light of current events or personal circumstances or personal experience. You read scripture in light of scripture. So you have the census plain or the plain sense of the text informed by comparing scripture with scripture. And so you do take the text seriously. You do believe that it is without error because Jesus himself said that. But again, you can't overlook the fact that Jesus and the apostles read the Bible in light of the new age, in light of the age to come, in light of Christ's death and resurrection. And therefore it is almost a different book in some passages because of the way the New Testament writers interpret it. That doesn't deny the perspicuity of the original audience. It does acknowledge that the Old Testament in its entirety points ahead to Christ. And it's not until Christ has come and done his redemptive work, that those Old Testament books make the most sense. And now they come alive because we see, wow, they're not only telling Israel uh, very important data and revealing the blessing curse principle and so on, they're also pointing ahead to the one who's going to fulfill that, who's going to take away the curse of sin and death. So both those things are going on simultaneously. So you're looking back at the promises and you're referring to the promises, not the, uh, not necessarily the immediate context of the, the passage. Dep depends on what you're doing. If you're doing systematic theology, you can do that. If you're preaching, you've got to establish the original context. What did that? What did the original audience hearing Zephaniah? What was their set of circumstances? What did they hear when the word of the Lord came through the prophet? Um, same with Ezekiel, Jeremiah, on and on and on. There, there's a sense which when you're when you're preaching, you've got to explicate the text as though the original audience had gotten it. And now people listening 3000 years later are trying to understand. And the way you provide the application understanding in that context is to show how those prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. The new Testament quotes a bunch of those prophecies explicitly. And there you can make a direct connection because the new Testament does. There are a number of those prophecies where there's an echo in the New Testament, and an echo would be an allusion to an Old Testament passage without citing it directly. There are tons of those. And so I think one of the most helpful things that you can do is to get, say, uh, Carson and Beale's commentary on the Old Testament, the New Testament commentary in the Old Testament, and just see how those threads are, are drawn. When you're doing systematic theology, you're doing things topically, and you're not as concerned about the context in the original audience as the content of the verse and how it fits into the, the doctrinal context you're trying to establish, if that makes sense. So the redemptive historical hermeneutic would be the grand scheme of Scripture. 
Yes, right. the redemptive historical hermeneutic is the box top. So if you're a fan of jigsaw puzzles and you get one of those all black puzzles, you know, you can spend forever looking at the individual pieces, which is the way I was taught to read the Bible as a dispensationalist. The, the minister would spend a whole lot of time looking at the Greek, uh, the Hebrew for this, that, or the other. And we had lots of little individual, individual bits of data, but never were able to see the big picture. And when you start to read the father of Reformed Biblical Theology, St. Gerhard's Voss, and some of his disciples, all of a sudden, those pieces now fit together better than they ever did before. Instead of being a black top, they now have a whole lot of pieces and a very clear picture, and it's a picture of Christ. You put those pieces together, and now whole chapters of the Bible open up that, that didn't before. So you, you want to, on the one hand, do careful exegesis, the text in its original context, yet at the same time, never lose sight of the box top. And you have to kind of do both things at once. Great. Uh, so do we get that type of guidance from Scripture, specifically from uh, the passage on, uh, of uh, the road to Emmaus? When Christ says that the, the law and the prophets, they speak of him. That's a clear passage, but there are a bunch of other instances. For example, the way Paul looks at covenant history in Galatians 3 and 4. It was pretty clear that either Paul had encountered Jesus who taught him to read the Bible differently than he'd been reading as a rabbi, or else Paul missed Sabbath school and got things really wrong. Uh, he takes a passage, a, a narrative of Abraham and Sarah and Abraham and Hagar, and he completely reinterprets that, and he says, this is an allegory. So the New Testament writers do that. Now, my dispensational friends will say, well, see, you're just making scripture into wax nose that says whatever you want it to say. I can only look for allegories when the New Testament tells me to. So the, okay. check, the check on this is what do the New Testament texts themselves say about the Old Testament? How do they quote the Old Testament? How does the Old Testament form their arguments? So the New Testament tells me what the Old Testament means. I flip the light on, the stuff is still in the same place it always was. It's just now I can see it a whole lot better from the vantage point of the New Testament. But it's Jesus, it's Paul, and just Hebrews 11 jumps out. You know, there are a whole bunch of texts like that, where the way the, way the apostles preach in the early chapters of the book of Acts uh, you look at the way um, Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, um, and the, with the Paul sermons in uh, Iconian Lystrop and so on, you know, where Barnabas is with him, and I think that Zeus has come down from heaven. You, you just look at the sermons and the way they appeal to the Old Testament, and that's how we as New Testament pastors and as Christian theologians look at the text. How did the apostles read it? Well, that's how we're going to read it. And it, it really is that simple, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kim, I have a question for you. In your book, you have a grid that is called the two-age model, the, the um, age to come, this age and the age to come. Can you talk to us a little, a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that. That is, is a very important element of biblical eschatology. The New Testament writers do not speak of a millennial age anywhere except possibly in Revelation chapter 20. Bible does not speak of a kingdom on earth. The Bible speaks rather of two contrasting ages. So as you start to look for this in the New Testament, you start to find it every place. Um, look up in your concordance references to this age. Every time you find a reference to this age, it's always linked to something temporal, 
Holmesfield's family, Satan's the god of this age, philosophers of wisdom of this age, on and on. Every reference to this age in the New Testament is temporal. So this age is the age in which we live now. It's an age that is coming to a screeching halt when Christ returns, and we go on into not temporal things, but eternal things. You also find in the New Testament, sometimes even contrasted this age with the age to come. Whenever the age to come appears in the New Testament, Jesus contrasts it, Paul contrasts it. Whenever it appears, the age to come is always an age of eternal things, things that aren't temporal, life that's truly life, no marriage or giving in marriage in the age to come. Uh, the kind of life we live here under the domain of sin and death and so on is broken and, and destroyed by the age to come. Now, the age to come breaks in when Christ dies and is raised from the dead. The, new, the age to come is already here in principle. And from that, we get this tension in the New Testament. It's uncomfortable, which is why a lot of theologians try and downplay it. But it's a tension between things that have already been accomplished in light of things that will be accomplished. So, for example, what do you mean by that? Well, Paul can say two times that God sees us in this life as already seated and raised with Christ in heavenly places. How does that work? Well, because I'm already a citizen in that age to come. In the divine mind, I'm already in heavenly places, even though I'm here sitting at my computer talking to you guys, you know, over this new thing called Zoom. Um, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in both ages. The mm -hmm. age to come is always things eternal. It's an age that breaks in with the new creation language we find in Paul. 2 Corinthians you know, 5 and 6 jump to mind. Um, this new creation breaks in. It's the uh, dominion of sin and death is broken by Christ's death and resurrection. And so we live simultaneously, as Paul puts it in Philippians, citizens of this age and citizens of heaven. Um, and that's the grid. That's the, the model of history we find in the New Testament. We don't find a golden age on earth any place. We find the overlay of two ages. So the two-age model uh, is pretty much, I think, a death blow to all forms of premillennialism because it shows that there is no earthly existence after Christ returns. And the big problem with any form of premillennialism is how do you get people on a material earth after Christ comes back? Who gets through the judgment in a natural body to have babies? That's pretty tough to explain. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm already participating, Jesus says, in the age to come. So it is the model we find in the New Testament. It's non-millenarian. It's not pre or post. It's a model that says, look, history is the overlay of two ages, a temporal age, which is going to end with a new heaven and a new earth when Christ comes back, and the eternal age that's already broken in, but we fully realize when our Lord returns and creates the everlasting home of righteousness, as Peter puts in 2 Peter 3. Now, some might bring up the objection that you're using this grid as a presupposition to interpret all of Scripture when we should take individual passages on their own. For instance, some of the passages that speak to a golden age in the Old Testament, that we should take them on their own and then go to other passages, take them on their own, and then form some kind of systematized doctrine and then come to our conclusion rather than using this grid. What's your response to that? My response is, of course, it's my presupposition. And I think one of the important discussions anybody ought to have in eschatology is before you even start picking up your Bible, what are your operating assumptions? So my operating assumption is that the New Testament interprets the Old. So if the New Testament lays out a model of history, of a contrast between this age and the age to come, then as a Christian, I'm going to read the Old Testament 
in light of anticipating this age and the age to come. Right. So, so temporal things in the Old Testament, promises of long life. You know, if somebody lives to only 120, you know, what happened to them? Lions lying down with lambs. Is, is the Bible trying to tell me that lions are become herbivores in the millennial kingdom? You know, one of the one of the great things of growing up as a dispensationalist was we were our youth pastor once told us, "Gee, in the millennium you can have a pet tiger." You know, <laughs> those kinds of things. Well, that comes up because you're looking for things temporal after Christ comes back. So golden ages, kingdoms in the Old Testament are reinterpreted in the new as types and shadows and pictures of an inheritance that's so glorious, I can't even begin to conceive of it in non-literal material terms. And until Christ conquers death in the grave, that would make no sense to an Old Testament saint. It's why I think in Acts chapter 1, the last question the disciples put to Jesus, and I wish I could do a Jewish accent, I can't, so I won't try it. The last question they put... Oi, fake him! Yeah. When, when, is, when are you going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? And you can just see Jesus, you know, oh my goodness, you guys have been with me all this time, and you still don't get it. That question isn't answered. Why? Because in Pentecost, the next chapter it is. When we see that the kingdom is not limited to the geography between the river of Egypt and the Euphrates. The kingdom now goes to the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, of course, which at that time was Rome. So that's why I look at all the the material golden age promises in the Old Testament, not referring to a millennial kingdom in the future, but is typological of a kingdom I can't even begin to get my arms around because I'm a creature bound by time and space, and I'm going to enter a kingdom that, that is, I occupy space, but it's beyond my earthly comprehension. So, Kim, are you telling me that the, <laughs> the, the dispensationalists, they have a retrogressive hermeneutic? <sighs> yes. Yes, I am. It's, it's a hermeneutic that, in fairness to dispensationalists, having been one, their concern is twofold. One is they, they want to read the Bible as it's given because they're concerned about a, Protestant theologians reading the Bible in this liberal Protestant sociological non-gospel grid, uh, the mm-hmm. foil, when dispensationalism became popular, the foil, at least in Protestant circles, was liberal mainland Protestants who thought that Jesus was basically a Galilean boy scout who helped little ladies cross the Sea of Galilee. I mean, they, they saw Jesus as a, as a boy scout uh, or, a, or a, a political revolutionary. That was their foil. So, of course, against those guys who deny the virgin birth and the resurrection miracles, you've got to take the scriptures seriously. So dispensations, bless them, are motivated to do that, and they, they still do that. They also have a very good point when they speak of different dispensations uh, tied to the progress of redemptive history. Things today are not like they were in the Garden of Eden. There's clearly a redemptive historical movement forward toward the end of time. So they hang on to those two things, and they're good things. It's just when they get to the New Testament, they allow, uh, say, the way they read Israel in the Old Testament to tell us what Israel means in the New Testament, instead of allowing Jesus and the apostles to say, you know what, that all made perfect sense until the death and resurrection of Christ. Now we see what those things truly meant. Let me give you an illustration, real simple. Tabernacle becomes temple. Mm-hmm. Why on earth, if the temple points forward to the heavenly temple, and Jesus says, destroy it three days, I'm going to raise it up, 
they were thinking he was talking about the building, he was talking about his own body. If Jesus is the true temple, then all that Old Testament language about tabernacle and temple points us to the heavenly temple, the true temple who's Christ. And so why on earth in a millennial age would you want to see a temple rebuilt and go back to the types and shadows? You're, you're asking for a giant redemptive historical U-turn. I know, let's go back to the types and shadows in eternity. Wow. No, you don't want to do that. Um, I'll give you an illustration. Way back when on the White Horse Inn, we were taping in a local studio here in Southern California, and they happened to be taping across the hall of broadcast of Tim LaHaye. And Tim, nice Christian gentleman, was done, and the, the, the studio owner with a gleam in his eye said, you got 10, 15 minutes, you want to sit in with uh, this other program we're taping? So in comes Dr. Tim LaHaye to sit with wow. my partner, Rob Rosenblatt. And he was, a very, he was a very gracious, uh, kind Christian man. Mm-hmm. And he sat down and he looks at us and he says, you men, uh, do you believe in Holy Communion? And we all kind of smiled. And he said, well, in the millennium, we're not going to have Holy Communion. We're going to go back to the sacrifices. Wow. Because the sacrifices are even better than communion. And we, of course, our chins are on the table. Um, that's the kind of thing that dispensationalists with a grammatical historical method I think used for all the right reasons, but used improperly. That's where you end up. You end up in a millennial kingdom going back to Jesus sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, communion gone, animal sacrifices back, people living in natural bodies next door to people in resurrected bodies. And how is that going to work? You end up creating a redemptive historical mess at the end. But Kim, they're memorial sacrifices. Uh, of course they are. Just like the Lord's Supper is a memorial sacrifice, right? No, 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 no. I mean, it seems to negate the whole book of Hebrews. You just threw it yeah, out the door. Yeah, huh? yeah, it does. You, you have a real problem with um, Hebrews and, a, and especially the 11th chapter where those people are not listed because of their faith. They're listed because they had faith in something that was much greater than a land in Palestine. Wow. Yeah, so to continue on, in your book you talk about themes, and I think you touched on this already, but uh, you speak of eschatological themes that are traced throughout the history of God's self-revelation in Scripture that allows us to view the whole panorama of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. Can you expound further on that? Um, yes. It, it's a There's a grand narrative, which is, the Bible is not a record of self-help techniques. It's not a springboard for personal experience. The Bible is a book of redemption. We call it redemptive history for a reason. After there was a fall, the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3.15 on is God's account of how he's going to redeem his people from the mess Adam has put them in. So when we speak of redemptive history, we mean exactly that. The Bible is not written to me. It's not written to you. It's written to people at various times in various places given by God, telling them how he was going to save them from the mess. So that's the big picture. Now, in light of that that major uh, big picture, there's some interesting subplots. For example, one that I've always been particularly interested in is the notion of an antichrist. So you have, throughout redemptive history, Satan attempting uh, to, before the coming of Christ, assassinate the messianic line and the, the messianic line disrupted in such a way that there won't be an antichrist uh, uh, a messiah you have in the new testament uh, the beast and the false prophet the imagery there is 
the Caesars and Rome's military power uh, being used and waged war against the people of God after heresy, you know, doesn't work. So you get jackboots and knocks on the door by the state telling you you can't have an assembly and if you confess Jesus is Lord, you're saying Caesar isn't, therefore we're going to put our boot on your neck. So the subplot of Christ versus an Antichrist you know, goes through the entirety of the redemptive drama. And there are others like that, the suffering servant, um, Jesus' prophet, priest, and king. There are a whole bunch of those threads that go throughout the course of history. And I think that the, the wonderful thing about the Reformed conception of redemptive history is you're seeing the Bible as a unified story from Genesis to Revelation, a story of God's redemption of his people. And carefully woven into that are a lot of subplots that are interesting and exciting. And you've got to work really hard to make the Bible a boring book. Um, it's, a, it's a really fascinating thing, but you miss that if you're isolating individual passages and not looking at the whole. Um, one of the, the best things that happened to me as an evangelical kid growing up in Bible churches was we were taught to memorize scripture. And so you may be familiar with a little loaf of bread with a verse you pull out every day and you know, memorize mm -hmm. the verse or read the verse or whatever, our daily bread kind of thing, mm -hmm. or devotionals that were, that were uh, uh, was to do that, teaching us to do that. I think that's great, but it misses something that's really profound. When you get your used to be, I'll have to say this in, in the past that you guys are too young to have ever done this. Um, when the New York Times or the LA Times comes on Sunday morning, you get a news story. And you would read the story, the headline, and you'd read the story through to the end. And the story made no sense unless you read the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. You would not go through that story and number the sentences one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and memorize sentence two and sentence 15 and expect to understand the story. So while it's important to memorize passages of scripture, I'd rather have people in my church be able to tell me in a few words what the Gospel of John is about. Uh, there's a, there's a, a sense in which knowing whole books of the Bible is really more important than knowing individual. Once we do that, then we're unifying vast amounts of biblical data. To understand John, you've got to understand the creation account. You have to understand the feasts and so on. So there, there's a sense in which uh, this atomistic, individual verse memorization kind of thing almost works to our disadvantage. We need to see the whole scripture, keep the box top before us. I think the best and simplest remedy for this is if people have a, an ESV study Bible or a Reformation study Bible from Ligonier, every now and then just go through and read the chapter introduction, yep. to all the books of the Bible. Just, just once a year do that. And all of a sudden you can make sense of the whole. Much more important to understand the whole than have a bunch of little individual snippets memorized. So thematic structures rather than or themes rather than individual verses. The box top. What's in the what's what's the box top showing me? It shows them as sinner and need a savior. Also, that's why catechesis is so important. Absolutely. I've real I've realized that myself in the last couple of years as well. Especially when you're teaching your kids because you can go verse by verse and they get lost immediately. But when you start teaching them question and answer they seem to comprehend it more and memorize it more. Well, the wisdom of our fathers in the uh, Dutch Reformed Church was the sermon was, the main sermon was an exposition of a biblical passage. And then in the afternoon, the ministers taught the congregation from children to seniors, the catechism. So you not only got a, a expositional sermon of a text, 
um, generally Lectio Continua, where you're going through a book of the Bible, you know, expositional preaching, and then followed by a catechism lesson. And, and were we to recover that again, we wouldn't, and I don't say this snottily, I, I hope it doesn't sound, we, we wouldn't have a dispensational reading of Scripture um, because we'd see the importance of the whole and how better to understand the Old Testament. Great. All right, Kim, why don't you take us into Revelation chapter 20? This is the main text that everybody goes to. This is the hot button issue. And um, where do you think the crux of the argument is here? Is this passage unclear? And do we use this age and the age to come model to interpret that passage? Great question, Matt. Um, I think with the book of Revelation, our evangelical church world has turned it into a weird book of mysteries and esoterica. Part of the problem is for the last two generations, Bible prophecy preachers have been pulling verses out of the book of Revelation to prove that the EU is the revival of the Roman Empire, that modern technology, John was seeing this. So when he saw a locust, he's really seeing a future uh, Bell helicopter, but it looked him like a locust. And we've done this to the book of Revelation so long We've just made it into this weird thing that people don't touch. So let's go back. What kind of a book is it? It's the capstone of the New Testament. It's the last book of the New Testament for a reason. It starts off by saying these things are about to happen to you getting this letter. And who are the you getting this letter? Well, in chapters 2 and 3, we have a list of all the churches, and they're laid out in along the postal route. That was the order in the first century in which that letter was going to be delivered to them. So uh, the book is written to a first century audience. It tells them that Christ is still the Lord of his church. There are seven churches for a reason, because seven would seem to uh, look at the sum total of the churches. The book of Revelation next moves into a section describing the heavenly scene, and the chapters 4 to 6, so you, you start to get the sense right away that I shouldn't be reading this like I'm going to read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. This is not a, a narrative kind of book. This is, this is different. Um, Dennis Johnson, who taught uh, New Testament at Westminster until his recent retirement, um, has a book called Triumph of the Lamb, which I've encouraged anybody listening to get. It's Great. the best introduction to the book yep. of Revelation you're ever mm -hmm. going to read. And Dennis demystifies the book of Revelation and turns it into a very practical book about Christ. But Dennis uses an illustration that I've never forgotten. Once I've heard it, I use it repeatedly. I, I, he's going to ask for royalties one of these days. I just know it. But he, he describes the book of Revelation as like watching a football game. And if you watch a football game at home, you see on your TV screen a camera focusing on one thing, one part of the game. Maybe it's the line of scrimmage. Maybe it's the broad view. Maybe it's the end zone camera. Maybe it's isolation on a wide receiver and, and the coverage breaking down or whatever. You know that in the truck outside, there are a whole bunch of different camera angles a whole bunch of different cameras, each with a different view of the same game. And so he says, that's kind of the way we ought to read the book of Revelation. There's seven cameras. In other words, there's seven visions. And each of the vision looks at a different thing of the same period in time. So you start to get a sense that the first seven churches, the first uh, three chapters, are looking at Christ, the Lord of his church, walking in the midst of his churches, blessing and cursing. Those things are always ongoing from the time... Christ ascended to heaven until the time he comes back. Then we move into a heavenly scene um, in chapters 4 to 6, where we see these are where the saints, when they die, this is where Grandma went when she died. She's in heaven. This is the scene she's seeing. 
And so you get this progressive notion then of judgments, the bull and trumpet judgments and all. You get to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 begins the seventh and final vision that's in the book of Revelation. And in those chapters, from chapter 20, verse 1, to the end of the book of Revelation, now we get the same period of time, Christ's first coming, his ascension, to his second coming. It's a, describing the present period of time, but this time from the perspective of heaven. The rest of it's earthly, except for the second vision, 4 to 6. This is the scene from heaven. And what it tells us is God's people are going to be under the persecution and assault of the beast. There are no lions lying down with lambs in Revelation chapter 20. There are people dying. They're martyrs, people who have to give up their lives to profess faith in Christ. And when they do that, John's point is they come alive and they reign with Christ in heaven for a thousand years. They reign with Christ wherever he is. The thrones are in heaven. They're not on earth. They're in heaven. Um, they go to where Christ is in heaven. So John is saying, look, Caesar can even take your life. That happened to Paul. That has just happened to Peter before Revelation was written, remember. The two great apostles are both put to death by Nero. They have come to life and reign with Christ. So the book of Revelation isn't a book telling me that when COVID-19 breaks out, God foretold of it, and I can see how it's going to work, and I shouldn't be surprised. What it's telling me is if I die of COVID-19, I come to life and reign with Christ. That's what it's telling Amen. me. Amen. So the key to see the book of Revelation is as it's given. It's a genre we don't use today in, in the modern world, apocalyptic. In apocalyptic literature, in the foreground is a particular historical event, the Roman Empire persecuting God's people. But in the background are these big picture themes very, I think artists and musicians understand Revelation far better than engineers and mathematicians do. It's got these big pictures, these big images, and those big images show us that the fight between the Roman Empire and Christ in the first century is a picture of what God's people are going to endure until Christ comes back. So I'm not looking for Nero to return, but I see in Nero the kind of figure who's going to reappear, say, again in 1930 in Germany. Mm -hmm. Or in Soviet Union with Stalin or Pol Pot in Cambodia. So not one Antichrist, but many Antichrists. Many Antichrists, who I personally believe will culminate in a final Antichrist. I think there will be a final one. But right. I think all these, these images that appear are telling us that, look, there is a heavenly perspective on this. Well, the earth is in chaos while God's people are suffering. Those who died, died in Christ, and they are ruling and reigning with him right now. And the only way you can see that is through the eye of faith. That's why I think you read the book of Revelation. That makes this book the most comforting book in the whole New Testament, and it makes perfect sense. Excellent. Um, can you talk about how there's recapitulation in the book of Revelation? Yeah, if you have seven visions, and each one tells the same story or covers the same period of time, each of those visions has a different theme. So the first one's the churches, the second one's the heavenly scene, all the way through to the final one, which is the final judgment. But if you look at the seventh and final vision, which includes Revelation 20, it's looking at the whole course of history from the time Satan is bound, bound by Christ, bound by the preaching of the gospel, until he is loose and thrown into the fire. It's looking at the interadvental period. But this last one focuses on different things than the former ones. So... If you look carefully, say, at Revelation chapter 12, um, I think what's 1, 7 through 11, 
it's almost the same thing in Revelation chapter 21 to 6. So you, you get an internal sense that the different visions are talking about the same thing at, at certain points, and you get a sense that each of these cycles is telling us something different about the course between Christ's first coming and his second coming, all from different camera angles. So yeah. we're watching on our screen one thing, but we know there are other cameras that are seeing the same game from different angles. That's the way you read the book of Revelation. Great. Thank you. Uh, Kim, back to uh, Revelation 20. Um, so you, you mentioned that this is a um, part of the, the camera angle that's referring to uh, the heavenly realm. And uh, we, there are some criticisms in regards to the actual, um, uh, the, the grammatical, the grammatical um, usage there. So some people say, oh, well, I guess not to name names, but uh, uh, the argument for the premillennial argument is um, when John describes the resurrected saints as reigning with Christ for a thousand years, uh, verses four to six, Revelation 20, he uses the Greek uh, accusative of time, which indicates that these saints will reign for the entire extent of the thousand year period. So the same accusative of time uh, for a thousand years is used in verse two, they state, and where he describes Satan as bound and imprisoned for the entirety of the millennium. And uh, the argument is that if John had intended to communicate uh, that these saints would reign during or within the thousand years, which would be compatible with the uh, millennial view, um, rather than throughout the entire extent of the thousand years, they argue that a genitive of time would have been more appropriate, but that wasn't used in the, in the passage. Yeah. Um, for the technical arguments there, I prefer you to say Greg Beale's um, commentary in the book of Revelation, Beale handles all those technical disputes really, really well. Just on a, a simple, practical way to, to look at issues like that, there are all kinds of disputes in the book of Revelation because of the genre. The genre sometimes will use time language as a way to paint a picture, not make a specific point. And that's different from us. We're, we're not looking at, say, Paul in Galatians talking about the seed of Abraham, and I mean seed singular, not seeds plural. There, the grammar really matters. The book of Revelation, it is used in a little bit looser sense, and that's not to say a, a slippery sense. So the way to answer questions, the technical exegetical questions like that, is let's take that argument out and put it against the backdrop of redemptive history. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, the thrones are always heavenly. So anyone who would say that the grammatical specifics of that passage require me to see this as an earthly thing, uh, that commences and continues on after Christ comes back, then you're doing great injustice to the rest of the book of Revelation, which always sees those thrones in heaven. So if this is a scene on earth, this is the only one in Revelation where it's used that way. The other thing I want to say is you do have other passages that give us a lot of light on what John is saying here, that that other premillennial, uh, Henry Alfred was the first with the first resurrection. This has gone on a long time. This isn't anything new. Um, I think you want to go back and look at, for example, Jesus talking about sending the 70 out to preach the gospel two by two. And when they report back, they say, you know, the passage is what um, Luke um, 10, I think, 11. Uh, yeah, 10, 17, and 19. When, when um, 
the disciples come back, they report to Jesus, look, we saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The strong man's bound. So that tells us that Jesus is speaking of a time when the, the devil is going to be bound. A time yet future. And that time is current uh, to, in his ministry. It may be future to the day he spoke to the disciples, but it's going to be his ministry because we saw a master. We saw, we've seen this happening. Um, even better, John chapter 5, uh, 24 to 25, where Jesus is talking about the resurrection. And he says, there's a resurrection to come now when people believe the gospel. They've already passed from death to life. Well, that's the first resurrection, Revelation chapter 20. So we've got other passages that tell us that, look, if that grammar is to be read the way you're saying it, look, let's look at the law of unintended consequences. Suppose for the sake of argument, the passage means what it says it does. Now you've got other issues that pop up elsewhere in the New Testament that don't fit with that. Jesus uh, seeing uh, the disciples seeing uh, Satan fall like lightning. Jesus speaking of first resurrection occurring at the time of conversion or, or death of believers enter heaven. You, you end up pitting passages against each other that may not make the best sense. The bigger problem for that position is if it's correct, is you've just introduced a second fall under redemptive history. And this is the point mm -hmm. that frustrates me the most about premillenarians. Suppose, for the sake of argument, you're right. Suppose your exegesis is proper. Then what do you get? You get Christ returning. And when he returns, some people make it through his return in natural bodies. You have to explain to me how when Christ comes back, when he separates the wheat from the tare, the sheep from the goats, elect from the reprobate, how somebody, how Fred and Nancy get through that without being either judged or redeemed. Or uh, sheep, goats, left, right. You know, How do you get through that? Then you have Jesus in Luke 20 saying, in the resurrection, you're going to be like an angel. There's no marriage or giving in marriage. Mm. How do you have procreation in the millennial age after Christ comes back? Joseph Smith had an answer to that. You know, um, how, how do you how do you end up having sex and babies after Christ comes back? What yep. biblical, yeah, what biblical justification do you have for that? Becomes almost absurd right. on its face. Third one that's even worse. At the end of the thousand years after Jesus Himself has ruled and reigned over the earth from Jerusalem. What do the nations do? The nations revolt against him and are destroyed. A second fall. Yeah, I always thought it was it's weird. crazy. It's crazy. I, I agree. I always thought it was weird and confusing because then you have people with glorified and unglorified bodies reigning together. How does that work out? It doesn't. So back to the point about the exegesis of Second uh, Revelation chapter twenty, and the idea that the the throne is instituting a, a earthly reign the grammatical grammatical arguments there are for guys who had a pluses in greek i'm a b plus greek guy so i'll <laughs> defer to beale and, and some of those okay. others but i am a big picture guy and i will tell you that if that exegesis is correct you've created a whole bunch of problems including explaining how people get to the second coming in natural bodies uh how they uh christ rules and reigns over a fallen earth and then you end up with this notion that we're going to go back to the types and shadows of the Old Testament. You do great injustice to the rest of Scripture on a plausible interpretation of a Greek verb. I'm not going there. Okay, just to follow up here, you mentioned the first and second resurrection. 
Now, a lot of people would object and say, well, look at the word anastasis when it comes to resurrection, that it only can mean a physical body or physical in nature. So in the first resurrection, it couldn't possibly mean what you're getting at. Well, that's a long argument. It was raised by Henry Alford, you know, in the early part of the what mid-century, uh, 1800s. Um, I, I think, again, those arguments are possible, but if they're true, what do you get? For the sake of argument, let's suppose that position is the correct one. If the first resurrection is when Christ comes back and the dead are raised there physically, you end up getting all the three things you don't want to get if that's true. A second fall, return to Old Testament types and shadows, how to get people through the second coming natural bodies. And again, remember the genre. This is a huge question. Mm -hmm. uh, the genre is big picture stuff. It's not the precise exegetical details that you're going to find in uh, other arguments in, say, Galatians chapter 3 about seeds. It's, it's apples and oranges in terms of how you see these books. So the trade-off is, if those arguments are correct, and they're certainly possible, I mean, it's, it, I'm not going to, in my limited uh, skill set, say, no, that's wrong exegetically, I'm, and here's why. I'm going to say, I can see both sides as plausible. What do I get if either one of them is true? If the dispensational exegesis of that passage, if the historical premillennial exegesis of that passage is correct, I get a second fall, mm -hmm. people in natural bodies and unresurrected bodies, and I get um, Old Testament types and shadows. When the Gospels have told me to think like, wait a minute, this is going to be heavenly life. No marriage or giving in marriage. This is going to be the age to come where things are no longer temporal. So I think the broader context of the New Testament gives me some categories that help me when I come to disputed particular texts. Um, Matthew 25 jumped to mind. When, when Christ returns, he separates the wheat and the hair and the sheep and the goats. You know. So what do you yeah. do with, with the, the judgment? One of the things, too, our dispensational friends have to be confronted with is their operating assumption is we always read texts like that literally. So we're going to take um, specific details and numbers in the book of Revelation literally, and yet when it comes to the judgment occurring a thousand years after Christ returns, they insert a gap here of a thousand years. Well, how can you do that on your own literal hermeneutic? You, your, your own hermeneutic precludes you from doing that, yet you do it. Uh, that was the one that really was hard for me as a dispensationalist. You know, have to read these passages literally, have to read them literally, grammatical historically. Oh, I have to put a gap in there. How do I do that on my own hermeneutic? I'm being inconsistent with my own, which is, I think, why it's so important to have a honest, frank, self-conversation about what are my operating assumptions. Hmm. Um, lay those things out. This is how I'm going to read the Bible, uh, this book, this genre, and I'm going to be consistent with that. And I think if we had that discussion prior, the debate over passages like Revelation 20 um, are aided greatly by having the right, here's my assumption, this is the way I'm going to read it, here's my assumption, this is the way I'm going to read it, all right, let's collide now, let's, let's go at it. Okay, Kim, you also mentioned the binding of Satan. Well, if Satan is bound, how can he be deceiving the nations? That's a great question. Every time I lecture on amillennialism, that question comes up. Uh, the passage tells us what it means for Satan to be bound. He can no longer deceive the nations. So, 
against the backdrop, this big picture draft backdrop we've you, know, you worked so hard to establish in your biblical theology. What are the great empires? Well, you have um, the Babylonians and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, those great scenes in Daniel when all those empires are crushed by a Christ coming from heaven. So the, the idea of a worldwide uh, an empire, a regional empire, persecuting the people of God, hauling them off, jailing them, and so on, um, that can't happen in the age to come the way that it had happened in world history. So you get the scene, for example, in Revelation 18 and 19 about Babylon the Great being consumed by its own builders. You know, the, the city of man is never going to win at the end. So Satan can hinder the preaching of the gospel. We know that from John's first epistle, he attempts to do this by heresy. Antichrist is anybody who denies that Jesus is the flesh, has come in the flesh. When that doesn't work, he results defaults to police power. When um, you read the language in Revelation 12 and 13 of the dragon stood at the shore of the sea and then the beast from the land, the beast in the sea appeared. That's the Roman Empire. God allows that for a time. But in the midst of the Roman Empire persecuting the people of God, the gospel spreads over the ends of the earth. So Satan is bound in the sense that he can't stop the preaching of the gospel. And we know that because the mm. text says that he can no longer deceive the nations. Uh, very similar to the unpardonable sin in Mark chapter was it three or four, where um, people are, are arguing that, you know, unpardonable sin, well, I've committed it. And Jesus says, well, wait a minute, the unpardonable sin is to look at his messianic mission and attribute that to Satan. That raises a question in my mind, can that sin even be committed today? I've not seen Jesus perform miracles and say he's sitting by the power of Satan. So there's some senses in which um, satanic power is so limited by the gospel that um, Satan was defeated at the cross, he was crushed, um, made a public spectacle, according to Paul and Colossians. His power is limited. Um, he cannot frustrate ultimate preaching of the gospel. Can he persecute God's people? Absolutely, and he does. Look at ISIS and other places. But worldwide, the gospel is still being proclaimed and preached, and Satan um, will be released at some point, and I hope I'm wrong in my interpretation of this, but when he's released from the abyss, we have a scene at the end of the book of Revelation of all hell breaking loose. Mm -hmm. uh, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we have a, uh, apostasy, the rise of the man of sin. So I anticipate at Satan's release, a cataclysmic outbreak of evil, such that we're not going to be holding prophecy conferences to decide whether or not this is it. We're <laughs> going to be saying, unless the Lord comes back, it's over. And I hope I'm wrong about that, but I, that's how I would read those passages. And that's why they constantly warn in Scripture to be ready, because when he does come back, he's not coming back as a Savior the second time. He's coming back as a judge the second time. Yeah, yeah. John the Baptist, when coming after me, he's going to baptize with fire and holy spirit and i don't think we want anything to do with fire baptism fire is kind of hot you know <laughs> i don't think we want the fire right. baptism yeah so kim uh, then in light of the the genre the um the overarching view that you mentioned so we how should we look at daniel 9 the all the discourses as well uh, and also romans 11 how should how should we look at those in how many minutes to answer those questions? <laughs> you have about 45 seconds. Just okay. Okay. Right. Romans 11? <laughs> okay. The quick answer to Daniel 9 is it's a messianic prophecy. The six things mentioned there 
put an end to transgression and so on. Uh, all of those things were accomplished by Christ in his Messianic mission. Um, the prophecy runs consecutively, seven weeks, 62 weeks. Jesus comes in the 70th week. In the middle of the 70th week, he's cut off. The language of being cut off refers to cutting a covenant. So that we're talking here about Christ's active and his passive obedience foretold. Daniel 9 is not a prophecy of predicting a seven-year tribulation period. It's messianic prophecy, wonderfully fulfilled in Christ. One of the best Old Testament passages to show the gospel and that Jesus is the foretold Messiah. The um, one who comes after is not Christ, according to dispensations, but Antichrist that cuts the covenant of Israel. Uh, no, it's Christ. It's not the Antichrist. And you can look at my book and other things for more details mm -hmm. on that. Just that's just a quick answer. As for the all of that discourse, Jesus is speaking much like an Old Testament prophet. He takes the disciples up on the Mount of Olives and shows them the very heart of Jewish religion, the temple, the, uh, all the accoutrements that go around it. This is going to be destroyed. And when the disciples hear that, their language is, you know, it's clear to them what Jesus is saying in their language. That means this is the end of the age. This must be the second coming. This must be it, right? And Jesus explains, yeah, it is. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee because this is going to be the greatest cataclysmic event ever to come upon Jerusalem and Israel in its history. We know that that was fulfilled in AD 70 when Titus surrounded the city, built siege walls, choked the Roman uh, the Roman army to avoid casualties, used uh, military engineering, built siege walls, siege towers. We know Josephus recounts that. Uh, called the anaconda strategy. You know, you, you choke the thing off to where no water, no food gets in, it capitulates. That's what happened. And Israel was dispersed. Um, and that is the greatest tragedy in all redemptive history. Israel was cut off and scattered among the nations. Um, I personally think that one of the signs of the end is the conversion of Israel, and that may be tied to Israel being back in the land and so on, which gets to Romans chapter 9 to 11. Um, I think the the discussion in Romans 9 to 11 is the only place except Ephesians 2 where Paul actually lays out the course of Israel and he essentially says there is this righteous root who's Christ by grace and mercy I'm grafting wild olive branches in Gentiles but you Gentiles don't get huffy because uh, I can tear you off and throw you in the fire if you become self-righteous like Israel did but the language seems to indicate that time of the end, the natural branches are going to be grafted back in uh, to the righteous root. So I see Romans 9 to 11 speaking of this glorious conversion of Israel in the days immediately before Christ comes back. Um, the passage seems to connect uh, this event with uh, the resurrection, uh, this giving of life uh, that's tied to the end. So I, I see that as uh, a passage foretelling the course of history, which ends with, Everything being summed up with God saving Israel at the end. Wow. So it kind of refutes those who bring up the accusation of replacement theology, since you just showed that you do believe there is a remnant at the end, a mass conversion. There's an elect remnant now, according to grace, that Paul holds as like, because that's true. What if? And that section ends with, of course, that great triumph and I'm not going to bring Christ down. We're going to, you know, we can't. Like, what if the gospel goes to people who are not my people? You know, that that wonderful end seems to point out that the pessimism that Paul had about the Jewish people then is going to change, and, and the story is going to end well and good. 
So I see Paul as um, talking about the conversion of his people in mass numbers before the end. But I do want to be really clear. I'm not talking about the land promise. The land promise was fulfilled when the gospel went to the ends mm -hmm. of the earth. Yes. We're talking about the people, the, the ethne, the, the Jewish yes. people being gathered to be converted. And large numbers of Jews will become Christians at the time of the end. Beza taught that. Voss teaches that. I mean, there's, there's a few of us. We're a minority report in the Reformed tradition, but there, there, there are uh, a number of us who would see it that way. Right. A lot of people would argue, since Israel is back in, in their land now, that that is a, f a fulfillment of prophecy. Right. It's the pink elephant in the room when you, as an all-millenarian, talk about eschatology with pre-millenarians. See, Israel's back in the land. And we're kind of stuck because both Louis Burkhoff and Gerhardus Voss, um, not uh, Gerhardus Voss, Louis Burkhoff and um, Herman Bobbing said, yeah, there are these, these new Bible teachers running around called dispensations, and they actually think Israel's going to become a nation again. So I get that thrown at me as well, and I, I think it behooves us to be careful about tying specific geopolitical events to biblical prophecy, because even our best guys stepped in it on that one. Well, I believe it was William Hendrickson who pointed out in one of his books that when Israel does, well, when the Jews come back into their land of Israel, that it will be a believing nation. Yes, I agree. Yes. Yeah, the current state of Israel is secular, mostly. Then It's not a, a theonomic state. Right. Okay, so I guess this ties into um, possibly the last question then. So um, all millenarians are... Um, almost entirely uh, covenantal in their theology. Um, and so is a covenantal context critical in developing that consistent eschatological position? Is it necessary? Anik, that's a great question because our Missouri Synod Lutheran friends are all millennial. Roman Catholics are all millennial. There uh, are other varieties of all millenarianism beyond covenant reform guys. So, um, I identify my own subset of amillennialism as reformed amillennialism to make the point you just made that my particular eschatology grows out of my covenant theology. My covenant theology is my hermeneutic. Amillennialism is my eschatology that grows out of my covenant theology. So I think it's important to to realize that the way the reform guys who are amill have come at this is because their covenant theology lends in that direction. Um, Rome's uh, all-millennialism is because Rome's view is that God's going to perfect the church. And we'll read millennial passages and future passages through the perfection and growth of the church as the body of Christ, which, of course, they think they are. Interesting. Um, Lutherans have a very similar eschatology to ours. And so if, when you talk to Lutherans who are all-mill, uh, they'll agree wholeheartedly and have a, uh, a little bit different uh, hermeneutic. Uh, a little more law gospel and less covenantal. So uh, I've always thought the Reformed and the Lutherans are first cousins. Compared to everybody else, we're, we're kind of blood relations. But first cousins can have some, some ha first cousins can have some nasty drag out fights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I heard some of the episodes on White Horse Sand with Rod Rosenblatt. You've got had, you guys had some uh, pretty good conversations there. <laughs> Dad Rod is awesome, though. He is. Dad Rod is a is just a ball fire. J.I. Packer once told him, Dr. Rosenblatt, you not only embody Luther's theology, you embody the man. <laughs> <laughs> is that a compliment? 
I think from Packer, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have a question for you before we go, Kim. So why is this such a hot button issue? I mean, people divide over this issue left and right. And a lot of people, unfortunately, put it as a primary issue on par with the gospel. Why is this? Why is it such a hot button issue? It's a great question. And it's a hard question to answer because people come at this for different reasons. Um, dispensationalists, for them, at least in the dispensationalism that I was raised, this was a fight about conservative, inerrant mm-hmm. reading of the Bible versus nutty social justice liberalism. Mm-hmm. You were up against guys who didn't really believe the Bible. So for the old guard dispensationalists, it was, if you're Amil, how on earth are you going to fight Protestant liberalism because you don't take the Bible literally? That was one camp. Then you have the Hal Lindsey, post-Hal Lindsey camp that they're so centered around national Israel and geopolitical Israel and their eschatology that if you don't think Israel being back in the land is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, you're subjecting yourself to the curses back in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. So for them, the fight is about Israel, and how dare you, as an odd millenarian, not think that Israel being back in the land is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. So that fight becomes one over Israel. So that's why the charge arises from some dispensationalists that you must be an anti-Semite because you don't think Israel's back in the land. Um, then there are others who will fight over this because it's tied to Calvinism. And so, you know, if you're going to go that Amil, reformed Amil route, it's because you believe in election and predestination and all of that. So that can't be right. So mm-hmm. there are a bunch of reasons why. I think at the end of the day, I think we as reformed Amilinarians, I as a reformed Amilinarian, have not been as public and as vocal as we ought to have been. And we've not been out doing Bible prophecy conferences and other things. So we've kind of lost the field just by our being absent from it. Um, dispensational writers reach far more than we ever will. Look at the the um, Left Behind series, the millions of volumes those things were sold. Um, so in, in one sense, I don't think we've been as clear and as public and as vocal as we ought to be, because I think, at least anecdotally from my experience, when Bible-believing Christians hear this the first time, they vehemently disagree, and then over time, even if they don't become on mill, start to think to themselves, you know, that does make some sense. And, for example, when the Evangelical Free Church and others that I was closely associated with removed their dispensational requirements from church membership, um, I I think we're slowly but surely uh, making some headway. We're not up against the thing dispensationalists are. Dispensationalists, as part of the movement, have these Bible prophecy puns to make predictions 24-7, There are probably 50 podcasts doing what you guys are doing on why COVID-19 is a sign of the end. Um, They've made so many predictions for so long. At some point, they start to fulfill Peter's prophecy. Scoffers will come and laugh saying, where is this coming that you promised? We're giving them so much ammunition. So um, it's a complex uh, question, and uh, that's how I'd answer it. Okay, so book recommendations. I've been asked this to ask of you. Um, what's the best commentary in the book of Revelation that people should read? Um, everyone listening ought to get and own um, Dennis Johnson's Triumph of the Lamb. It's the best single introduction to the book of Revelation I know of. 
if you have academic uh, skill, then Greg Beale's commentary in the International Critical Commentary in the New Testament is worth its weight in fine gold. There are 10 sermons on every page in that commentary. Mm-hmm. Bob Godfrey, Robert Godfrey, the former president of Westminster Seminary, is now doing a lot with Ligonier. He's just released a, a series of sermons on the book of Revelation. And knowing Bob, I'll bet they're worth their weight in gold. Awesome. Hey, another book that I love that I think you have to really take them together. I think they're different, but I think they're just both awesome. Is number one, your book. But Sam Storm's Kingdom Come, what do you think of that book? Sam Storm's book is really a great book because he went to Dallas Seminary. He was in the belly of the beast. He's had firsthand discussions with them. So his critique of dispensationalism is outstanding and stellar. The only caveat I have with Sam is, and we briefly talked about this over email, was that um, I, as a confessional reform Christian, wish he had made covenant a category, and he doesn't, mm-hmm. because he's right. not. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, I mean, that's just a minor point of disagreement. I yeah. think anybody who's interested in this should read Hookham's Bible in the Future, Cornell Spenno's book on the, on the uh, future, I forget the exact title, and Sam Storm's uh, book as well. Those, those are like the gold standard, and you should read all of them. Okay. Now, on the opposite end, what would you recommend the person read from a premillennial side for the best arguments? There are a couple of new uh, premillennial books that address some of the issues that I and others have raised, but I still think that the best introduction to premillennial theology the system is still J. Dwight Pentecost, things to come. Wow. He, Pentecost trained all the current dispensational writers now, and it's like Louis Burkhoff. He's been dead and gone a while, but you still can't go around that book. You, If you're reformed, you've got to tackle Burkhoff. If you're dispensational, mm-hmm. I think you have to tackle Pentecost. My dispensational right. friends probably won't agree, but that I still go to that when I want to know what it is that dispensationalists believe. Great. Thank you so much. And Kim, where can people reach you? People can reach me by uh, following ChristReform.org. I'm the senior pastor at Christ Reform Church in Anaheim. Uh, We're a United Reform congregation. Um, I am retiring at the end of the year, so uh, my my blog, The Riddle Blog, will continue, I think. So you can find me at The Riddle Blog. And please tell us that you will continue writing. I think so. Um, Yeah, I hope so. I, I, I... plan to play semi professor once in a while and uh, continue to write. Oh, we sure hope so. Yeah. And Onig, where can people reach us? They can re- reach us by email at uh, info at bttrmin.org or back to the reformation at gmail.com. They can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And we're, our podcast is on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Stitcher. And um, that's it. Great. Thank you so much, Kim, for Thank joining you guys. us. It was, a, it was a pleasure. It was very much a pleasure. And you've been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast, and we hope you join us next time for another episode. See ya. See ya.